You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group and airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. On Real Fiction, I speak with novelists, journalists, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. Best-selling author A.J. Bame joins me to discuss his latest book, White Lies. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author A.J. Bame. Until now, one of the most significant Black civil rights leaders remained largely forgotten. White Lies is a newly released book from best-selling author A.J. Bame that introduces readers to Walter F. White, a man who led two lives. One as a leader of the Harlem Renaissance and the NAACP, the second as a white investigative reporter who covered lynching crimes in the Deep South. Joining me today is A.J. Bame, author of numerous books of history, including The Accidental President. He is a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal. And this latest book, White Lies, is a look at the life of a headline-making activist and investigator. So joining me from California is author A.J. Bame. Welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you, Laurie. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, in 1938, I learned in the book... Uh, Walter F. White appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and the article referred to him as the most potent leader of his race in the United States. And the first question I had when this book landed on my desk was, who was Walter F. White? And what sparked the years-long effort to complete a book about him? Well, Walter has appeared as a, a minor character in the last three books I've written. So he's been on my mind for 10 years uh, mm. And slowly building research about him, and finally the time came where I wanted to render sort of a character study of Walter's life because to me it just seemed difficult to believe that it his life unfolded the way it did. So Walter was what he called the enigma of a black man in a white body. So he identified as black. He went to a black school, black church, black university, but his skin was white, his hair was uh, blonde, and his eyes were blue. And he lived um, a double life. Um, to try to force America to change in ways that he thought was very important. I'm sure you get this question a lot. And I was thinking about this myself. And I think many people wonder how a person who is able to pass in different situations, um, how do they choose one side or the other? And in chapter 10, you have a passage that I, I really kind of hovered over this. And you write, But Walter's own story of passing was unique. He passed as a white man, but not for the reasons that others did. He crossed over to become an agent of change, a crime fighter. And then in 1922, he wrote an article in the New York Evening Post about his undercover life, and it was titled Exploits 
of a colored investigator of lynchings. I wonder what did it reveal to you about Walter F's white mentality and maybe his sense of purpose? Well, that that was that article I found just during my research. I felt it was incumbent on myself to if I was going to write a book like this to read and find everything. 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 And that's why it took years and years and years to do. Um, but that article is particularly interesting to me because Walter passed as white so he could pose as, an, he, uh, pose as a white newspaper reporter from the North so he could go down and ingratiate himself in these communities where ritualistic murders occurred. And he would uh, get the facts because if you're a white person in a town, small town cut off from the rest of the world before the days of TV, um, he could interview people and people would talk to him. Um, even m- murderers themselves would reveal what they had done in these communities where everybody knew who the murderers were, and yet no arrests were ever made. So Walter became this investigator in the South where he would pose as a white man and then go back up North, write these sensational articles for newspapers and magazines, and try to shed light and tell the world what was happening in these small communities. Um, But that particular article is very interesting to me because it sort of reveals the degree, the ambition Uh, there was definitely an element of self-promotion in Walter's makeup. Yeah, I was wondering why he would choose to write an article uh, like that and and be engaged in the aspect of self-promotion when part of his success uh, relied on him being unknown. And I wonder if you can touch a little bit more about what was Walter White's strategy for going into some of these, these situations in the South? What was his story? What did he tell people he was doing there? Well, it began, the first investigation, uh, it happened in 1918. He had been plucked from obscurity in Atlanta, brought to New York to work for the NAACP at a time where very few people had heard of the NAACP. And I think it was his 12th day on the job where he found out about this this uh, murder of a black name man named uh, James McElheron in a small community. Everybody knowed, knew, knew, he assumed, you know, who the murderers were and no one was arrested. So Walter went down there. And he posed as a traveling salesman. He made up a company called the Exalento Medicine Company. And he introduced himself to all the people in this tiny town. And he had time to kill, he said, because he was selling a hair straightener and he'd ran out of product. So he's just killing time and making friends. And he started asking about this story that he had read about in the newspaper. And um, people were happy to share what they had done to James McElheron. And it was pretty sensationally awful. So Walter then goes north. And he writes this article for the crisis, and it causes a sensation. It's a magazine that's distributed nationally. So in his first weeks at the NAACP, he realized that because he considered himself the enigma of a white, of a black man in a white body, he could sort of weaponize his skin color and go after the bad guys, which is what he did. If I didn't absorb all of the the years of research that went into this, how meticulous you looked at every detail, I would not have believed this was real. And just going back to uh, the strategy of breaking into these white enclaves, it wasn't just going into little hotels or restaurants to gain access to stories. He was able to penetrate high political offices. He he managed to pass with the governor of Arkansas. Yeah. So Walter, there was this horrible massacre in Arkansas in, um, I believe it was uh, the climactic moment of the awful red summer of 1919. And Walter uh, goes down to Arkansas and he investigates this massacre that occurred in which nobody was arrested. 
and he got the names, got the facts, and he um, barged into the uh, governor's office and told the governor that he was a white reporter from a northern newspaper and that he didn't, he didn't want any trouble. And he convinced the governor to write a letter saying, this is Walter White. You should talk to him. He's a good guy. And he called Walter, according to Walter's uh, recollections, one of the best reporters uh, that he, mm. the governor had ever met. And that's just the degree of ambition, audacity that Walter had that he thought was required for him if he was going to get this job done. So Walter White gains access in small corners and in high political offices, takes these stories back to the NAACP, and they become really groundbreaking reports on lynchings and race riots. And what I learned much more about when reading this book is that the NAACP had a publication, in fact, I, I believe it's still in publication, called called The Crisis. And these reports uh, originated from NAACP, I, I guess, funding and strategy. But then they eventually made their way into a number of different publications. What did you learn about this publication and its influence in um, you know, newspapers, large and small at that time? Specifically, The Crisis. The Crisis. Well, The Crisis was the NAACP's magazine. And um, it was distributed nationally, and it was a place for the writers. It, you know, the NAACP at that time was decidedly bookish. The, the, the main people who worked there was a very small organization, W.E.B. E. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson. These were um, highly successful literary people, and they considered literature to be a kind of activism, journalism to be a kind of activism. Uh, and the crisis was really set up to uh, be a place where – Americans could read about these things that were happening in our country that were not reported on in other places. And it was also sort of uh, used for recruiting because it was distributed mm. nationally and because there was this, it was a grassroots organization. And this is the way that the main office in New York could reach out um, to members across the country. Okay. Now, one question I had about the that magazine and Walter White's association with it. Did he have a byline in these reports or were they published without his name? He did have a byline, which is fascinating. But you have to remember in the days, obviously, before television, um, Walter conducted these investigations. You know, the whole first half of this book of White Lies is about living this double life. And he was incredibly um, self-promotional. And it's it's bizarre to think that his safety required um, that his identity not be known, but he was becoming more and more famous. So every time he went on one of these investigations posing a, as a white man, it became more and more dangerous for him to do these things. And ultimately, he became so famous that he couldn't do it anymore. But it's also important to, to remember that you know there were two kinds of publications at that time, almost like we have two kinds of television stations today. And right. black newspapers and uh, the crisis they had mainly a black readership and white newspapers had a white readership. And so there wasn't a lot of cross-pollinization, which is why Walter started writing for more mainstream magazines like The Nation, like The New Republic. As you studied Walter White and you looked at what he wrote and how, how he developed strategies for these investigations, do you consider him an investigative reporter 
or I should say an investigator or a journalist and how you know those terms are similar but they're different how where where does he fall when you think about him i think both because he began you know he starts out posing as a traveling salesman for the exalento medicine company um but later he says he's a white journalist for uh, major newspapers and in fact he was getting assignments from major newspapers like the new york world and um black owned newspapers as well and eventually became you know a newspaper columnist, which in the days before television was a very influential position to be in. I'll remind listeners that my guest today is A.J. Bame. His new book is White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. It was just published. Another jaw-dropping aspect of this book is uh, Walter F. White's fascination, obsession with infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan, which was uh, really still on the rise at this time. And you found, again, you found everything when you were writing this book, you found his application to become a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he listed as his profession journalist, which uh, again, is interesting when you think about how he was hoping to gain access to this organization. What did you learn um, about his obsession? What became of his obsession with the Ku Klux Klan, and was he successful in infiltrating? Well, the the modern KKK was founded in a ceremony atop Stone Mountain right outside of, I guess, part of Atlanta where Walter grew up uh, and became very influential very quickly on the heels of a movie called Birth of the Nation, which was the first movie ever showed in the White House. It was a massive, massive hit among white audiences. And it painted the KKK of the Civil War, post-Civil War era as like, you know, this crusading organization that was going to save white America from black people. And the modern KKK comes into being with that message and uh, is very quickly, very influential, spreading across local governments all, all across, beginning in the South and then moving northward. And when you, if you just type in, you know, Ku Klux Klan into, the, into these databases of newspapers from the 1920s. It's just amazing how much press they were getting and how out in the open it all was. And Walter became obsessed. He became obsessed with taking down the KKK. You have to imagine, like, for just as an example, in 1925, uh, the KKK held a march in Washington, D.C., right past the White House. 25,000 people marched in this in uniform. Uh, one journalist said it, that you know that that Washington D.C. looked like a giant snowbank because there were so mm. many white robes, and that's what Walter was really up against. He sort of had this personal obsession with taking down the KKK, and it sort of turned into this rivalry between the NAACP and the KKK at that time. In fact, Walter even put out a pamphlet called "The NAACP Versus K- the KKK." But yes, that specific document I found in my research. And it's his application to join. And, uh, you know, he lists his name, he lists his age, he lists his, you know, journalism as his, as his profession. And I think, at, at, you know, at, at one point it asks the, you know, what race are you? And I think he left that blank because whoever was reading it on the other right. side would, uh, would just assume that anybody applying to be a member of the KKK would not be black. But Walter was. Where did you find most of your source material? I, I mentioned that uh, you've written a number of best-selling 
nonfiction his works of history. You're an expert on Truman, FDR. So you've you've uh, you've been in these extraordinary bodies of archival research. Where where did you find the richest sources of information about Walter F. White? Thank you for asking that question, Lori. It's a, sort of an interesting backstory that um, I had read so much about Walter and written about him in three books as a minor character. And I decided that um, I wanted to write a book about him, one that hadn't been written yet. And so I went to Yale, where which is the main trove of his papers, wondering whether there would be enough there for a book. And when I walked out of there after a week of research, I was really stunned. I was like, I was amazed at what I found. Uh, and st- it was material that I felt hadn't seen the light of day, really, uh, in, in terms of, you know, at least certainly in terms of mainstream readership. And then I did a bunch of research in New York. And I remember it was March 12th. Uh, my son performed at Carnegie Hall, which was very exciting. And I stayed mm. on in New York City to do some research about Walter. I found everything in the uh, the New York Public Library that I was looking for. And right when that happened, the day I left, the pandemic shut everything down. And I was concerned that I was going to be able to get this research done. But what I discovered was the NAACP papers, which is really where Walter's material really lies, is all digitized. So I was able to do a tremendous amount of research right here in my office. And the degree to the, the, the amount of material was staggering. And anybody can have access to it through the New York Public Library. And again, what, what you do in this book is you give the reader a thorough understanding of what was happening in the South and what was happening in New York City, where the NAACP was headquartered. And by the 1930s, Walter F. White had been working for them for a number of years. They'd become very influential, a national organization. And by that time, they were earning the attention of the White House. And I was absolutely fascinated by the path to Walter meeting with FDR. Can you, can you share something about Eleanor Roosevelt's role in getting the president and Walter White to meet? Yes, Walter was desperate. He was desperate to get to the White House. He was desperate to get to the seat of power because by this time he had spent over a decade as an undercover investigator. He had risen to the top chief executive of the NAACP and he still saw, you know, in his daily newspapers monstrous amounts of injustice in in, in our country. And so he decided in the mid 20s that he wanted to become a major political force in America. And all roads led to the White House. Um, he couldn't get in to see FDR, so he befriended Eleanor Roosevelt, um, and they actually became very close friends all the way up until uh, Walter's death. And as a matter of fact, Walter even convinced her to become a board member of the NAACP, but she was really very instrumental in getting FDR to listen to Walter White. And eventually, Walter became you know, uh, a frequent guest of the Oval Office, but it was all because of Eleanor and um, because she, she really believed in Walter's cause and she believed in Walter um, and she did not have the political difficulties that her husband did. We have to remember that the Democratic Party during the 1930s, FDR's party was also the like the, the party of the solid South. Um, yes, you know, basically white supremacy um, within the Democrat uh, within the Democratic Party. The senators, the congressmen, uh, the governors. These were some of these guys were ruthless demagogues, and they were very powerful, and they were highly. Uh, supportive of the status quo of white supremacy. And FDR couldn't upset these people. 
from within his own party. It was too politically dangerous. So Eleanor decided that she was going to go out and do it for him. Yeah. I think what makes Walter F. White uh, such an extraordinary character to uh, read and write about is that as soon as he gets to this really high position um, politically with the biggest players in the world, he has this other yearning. And what we we are reminded of in this this book is that Harlem uh, was becoming, as you write, was becoming a beacon for literary talent. And we learned that Walter White writes a novel. He does it in 12 days. It becomes a sensation. And then he eventually earns a Guggenheim grant and moves abroad. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about this uh, life shift, uh, because for me, there's a real fascinating tension between Walter F. White's lifelong quest for progress and then this desire for literary validation and fame. That's an excellent question. And I absolutely agree with you. So um, in the first half of the book, essentially, the book is called The Double Life of Walter White. And, and what that means in the first half of the book is that he's um, he's living you know, as this undercover investigator in the South, uh, investigating uh, racist murders and race riots. At the same time, he's living openly as a black man in Harlem, and he gets there right at the beginning, right primed to make a name for himself right when the Harlem Renaissance starts. And Walter had learned from his uh, his mentor, James Weldon Johnson, that art and literature and activism go hand in hand. The, the, mm. you know, Walter's mentor, these were his two passions, activism and art and literature. And um, Walter wanted to be successful like his mentor. And he, you know, I think if you get to the end of the book, you realize this is a highly, highly ambitious and a little bit of a vain person. And he was desperate. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be a, a literary superstar. And so he pounds out this novel in 12 days. I think I went, the way I put it in the book is that anybody who actually finishes writing a novel has to be a little manic <laughs> and to be, to do yes. it in 12 days. And I also, what you write about beautifully in this book is that um, because there are so many period pieces and we we, re- we are reminded that this is the age of print journalism and the early days of radio. It's well before TV when Walter White's prominence really developed. Um, what are your thoughts about the significance of his rise bef- in this era before television was really part of part of American life? Because Nobody saw him on a daily basis. He, we want to remind ourselves that he had fair skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. I think that's an excellent question. And the fact is, this, this story could never, ever have happened during the era of television. And if you think about the first, at the beginning of our chat, you, you asked me about this cover when he appears on, on, on uh, the cover of Time magazine, and, the, and he's called the, you know, Time calls him the most potent race leader. Yeah. And, and you think about that. And, and there's actually a scene very early in the book, Walter's first first time he's asked to give a speech. And he gets up and he says something to the effect of, we have to tell these white people, you know, we're not going to stand for this anymore. And people in the crowd knew who he was. So they did not find it so odd that he appeared white. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and, and pale skin. Uh, and it, it's um, – so there's two reasons – two reasons why people today don't know who Walter F. White is. And one is there's, there was a scandal toward the end of his life that really, a romantic scandal that destroyed his reputation. And I talk about that a lot in the book. 
Um, but also, he died in 1955, right? You know, right before the Montgomery bus boycott and the new era of civil rights rights leaders in the late 1950s and the 1960s, in the new age of television. There were no, there was no way that the face of black power in America was going to have white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. It just wasn't going to work. And I think that the next generation of civil rights leaders really abandoned Walter's legacy for both of the reasons that I just mentioned, which is why I think people don't know who he is today. Uh, again, I if I hadn't looked at the the notes and and how well you researched this, I just <laughs> there were times when I thought, is this story really real? But this happened. Um, Walter White was a fixture in the Black civil rights um, community and uh, in its progress. I know you're going to get this question a lot um, now that this book has just been released. After you've written this book and you've thought about this man for years. Uh, people are going to ask you, was Walter F. White, white or black? Well, it's funny you say that because at the end of the book, the very last paragraph, you know, people, I, I point out the fact that people have been asking me that question a lot. Yes. And so I, I defer to what Walter said, and this is what, how he summed it up. He said, I am one of the two in the color of my skin. I'm the other in the spirit and my spirit and my heart. It is only a love of both, which binds the two together in me. I am white and I am black and know that there is no difference. Each cast, casts a shadow and all shadows are dark. So that's that. there you have it in Walter's words. I, I couldn't say it any better. There you have it. And it is, in fact, the final paragraph of the book. Um, the book is White Lies, the double life of Walter F. White and America's darkest secret. AJ Bame, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. It has been um, really enlightening and a real education to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Laurie. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Real Fiction Radio Program is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com, where you can learn more about today's guest. Thanks for listening.